Great to see you, Purpose Church. Can you believe that next Sunday, December 19th, is Christmas Sunday? And we're going to have our regular online service and uh, on our campus, we're going to have our regular services, but they're going to be followed by hot cocoa, cookies, carolers, the Holy Family, the Wise Men, Herod, and camel rides. Uh, you've heard me say this before, but people pay large amounts of money to go halfway around the world for a camel ride. But next Sunday, you or your children or your grandchildren uh, can ride a camel right here on our campus uh, for just a small donation. And so really encourage you to come and bring your family and friends. And then our candlelight Christmas Eve services are going to be at uh, 3 p.m. in the gym, 5 p.m. under the tent, and then 7 p.m. back in the gym. And so I want to ask you the question, who are you inviting? Who is it that you're praying about that you're going to invite to either Christmas Sunday, next Sunday, or to one of our Christmas Eve services? And I always make that promise that if you invite your family and your friends either to Christmas Sunday or to our Christmas Eve services, I will share Jesus uh, with them. And then finally, I'd like to ask you to keep praying uh, for our worship center uh, renovations. Uh, just like last Sunday, I've got one piece of bad news and two pieces of good news uh, to share with you. Uh, the bad news is that uh, earlier this week, we ran into some fire suppression details this week that will probably delay our permitting process. But the good news is that it's going to save us a bunch of money and it's going to make the sound acoustics even better. And you know, it's been just amazing how just about every delay that we've had on this project has resulted in, in a workaround that either saves us money or makes an improvement in the final result. I want to call our worship center renovations Operation Romans 828 because all things have been working uh, together for good uh, to those that love God and are called according to His purposes. And Purpose Church has felt that through this process. So even though it may delay it a bit uh, from what I told you last Sunday or shared last Sunday, it's still saving us uh, resources that can go into ministry and elsewhere. And it's also uh, making the final thing better, even though maybe a little bit later, but it's going to be a better uh, product and result at the end of it. So now let's dig into our December series, Christmas with Purpose, and our study today is the unwanted guest at the manger. The unwanted, who is the unwanted guest at the manger? Now when you think of the nativity scene, you think of shepherds and wise men and animals and angels and the holy family and all is peaceful and calm. And it may have been that way on the outside, but behind the scenes, in the realm of spiritual warfare, something very different was going on. Uh, the book of Revelation describes the birth of Jesus way different than what's going on in the Gospels. And yes, the birth of Jesus is found in the book of Revelation. Revelation is kind of spiritually what's going on behind the scenes. The Gospels share what's going on in front of the scenes uh, in, in the life of uh, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and everybody else. But Revelation de describes what's going on in the heavenlies, what's going on in the spiritual realm with spiritual warfare. And like I said, the birth of Jesus is found in the book of Revelation. It's, it's actually a rather dark passage, uh, but it's no lesser truth than the account of Jesus' birth described in the Gospels. So uh, here's the way 
your nativity scene probably looks. This is what your nativity scene or my nativity scene um, looks like, just something like this. But based on this study we're doing today, it should look like this. <laughs> All right, you're like, Glenn, what are, are you talking about? Well, uh, who should be in the, in the manger scene, in the nativity scene, it should include a red dragon as you see it right here. And you know, this could really catch on if we could convince people every nativity scene all around the world that their nativity scene is incomplete and they need a red dragon. Oh my goodness, that, that could be something. Uh, we, we, we could raise a bunch of money for building for generations, couldn't we? If we could sell everybody in the world a red dragon to go in their nativity scene. The un I'm just kidding about that, by the way, of course. The untalked about character in the nativity is a red dragon. You say, okay, Glenn, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I'm going to read Revelation chapter 12, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to read through without any commentary. I'm just going to, I'm just going to share, uh, just read uh, all 17 verses in one sitting uh, from Revelation chapter 12, and then we're going to go and we're going to uh, break it down uh, after I read the whole thing. So let's get the forest, and then we're going to break it down and look at the trees within the forest. Revelation. Chapter 12, verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male son, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters he who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war 
against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Now, uh, there's a Christmas story that you won't find in any of the Christmas uh, uh, children's Christmas storybooks. I'm going to read a story like we have as a tradition to the children on uh, Sunday, December 26th. On Christmas Eve, storyteller uh, Sarah Holmstrom, Pastor Eric's wife, is going to share the story to the children. But on December 26th, on that Sunday after Christmas, I'm going to share the story with the children just like I uh, often do. And so maybe I'll just read Revelation chapter 12 <laughs> to the kids. Just kidding. I, I won't do that. Okay, let's break down that whole chapter. Let's break it down into four bite-sized pieces. Um, number one, biblical principle number one, Satan's kingdom is real and it's powerful. But it's one that we don't talk about uh, very much. The temporary rule of Satan and his kingdom is a topic that some people avoid. But uh, life has always been involved in this age-old battle. And we talk here at Purpose Church about everything, the whole counsel of God, everything that's going on in Scripture. And so we want to talk about this. And it's so relevant because we, whether we know it or not, we were born into a war zone. Uh, we've been involved in this age-old battle that Revelation describes here that spiritually is going on behind the scenes. Uh, C.S. Lewis said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall, the human race, can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, the demons themselves, are equally pleased by both errors. Uh, they're happy if we ignore them because then they can do their work without being noticed or attacked or stood up against, but they're also happy if we have too much interest in them. So the balance we want at Purpose Church and in our Christian lives is to know about them, be forewarned, uh, be prepared, but not to be obsessively interested in them because after all, Satan, as we're going to see, is a defeated foe. A revelation reveals a battle that happened way before you and I were born into this world. We were born into a war zone, a battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of a jealous enemy, a jealous foe who's always wanted to be the God of the universe but is not and can't be. Now, how did this battle begin? Well, it began um, uh, at the beginning of time, a, a long time ago, a beautiful angel of light called Lucifer rebelled against God in the heavenly kingdom. And here was the result in chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. Let's read those verses again. But he, Satan, uh, Lucifer, was not strong enough. And they, the demons that followed Lucifer, those that, the, the demons that followed him, the other angels that followed him, they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon, that's Satan, was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels uh, with him. Now, guess who lives in a place called planet earth? We do. And he was hurled down to the earth. And so the story of humanity 
only makes sense in the light of this story. Everything that's going on in the world, all the chaos, all the hurt, all the brokenness, it just makes sense in light of this story. And, and people sense that. Say, they somehow sense it. Do you know that I saw a poll where more Americans believe in Satan than believe in God? Um, most, almost all believe in, in God, but even more in our country believe in Satan. When they see everything that's going on, they, they believe there has got to be a Satan. Uh, we are in a war zone. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, before he fell, before he rebelled, his name was Lucifer, which means angel of light. But after he was hurled from heaven, he now has the name of Satan, which means adversary of God. Now, these two kingdoms couldn't be more different. One is the kingdom of God. One's the kingdom of heaven, of light, of life. The other is the kingdom of Satan. It's a kingdom of this earth, of darkness, and of death. Uh, one is of eternal life, and the other is of an eternal righteous sentence for rebelling against a holy and a perfect God who's made everything that's good for us, and yet they rebelled against it. And when we realize that where we live is the devil's playground, it just makes a lot of sense about our suffering, doesn't it? Doesn't a, doesn't a lot of stuff make sense when we see what's going on behind here in the book of Revelation? Um, say, for example, somebody is going crazy because they're just spinning around, being knocked around, spinning around in this life. And you tell that person that they're a sock in a washing machine. Just say, you know, I want to tell you something. You are a sock in a washing machine. Now, it doesn't make their suffering go away. It doesn't make our suffering go away. But it does help them to make sense of what's going on. And it gives them hope that their situation is temporary, that the wash cycle will soon be over. And that's the way it is in this life. You tell somebody, we live in a war zone. Now, you can have joys along the way in a war zone. Uh, you can have uh, some times of, of, of goodness and camaraderie in a war zone. But you're not shocked when suffering comes. If you realize you live in a war zone, you're not stunned or shocked or taken by surprise when, when suffering comes along. I, you know, I often like to say, we got to remember that we are on a battleship, not a cruise ship. We want Purpose Church not to be a cruise ship where it's all about our needs being met. We, we see ourselves as being on a battleship. We are organized. We are together. We are mobilized in order to reach people for Christ, to take spiritual territory for God, to expand the kingdom of God. And it's all about perspective. Uh, imagine two people who are staying in a dingy hotel uh, for a couple of nights. And the first guy thought he was going to a luxury, all-expense paid vacation, and he ends up in this dingy hotel. Now, you can imagine what his attitude is going to be. But the second guy thought he was going to jail, and instead he's in this dingy hotel. And, and to him, this is an upgrade. The dingy hotel is way better than going to jail, but to the other one, expecting that they were going to a luxury, all-expense-paid uh, vacation, ends up in a, a dingy hotel, uh, they're going to be disappointed. Uh, we suffer 
because before we lived here, Satan and his demons lived here. Uh, That's why we suffer. When we have that perspective, it's going to make us look more realistically at life. And yes, there will be joys. And yes, there will be wonderful times. And and yet, we we were not surprised when there are the hard times, when there's suffering, when there's brokenness. Uh, Now, here's the bad news. The bad news is that earth is for now, just for now, temporarily, the place where Satan has limited dominion. But here's the good news, the good news of Christmas. Jesus decided to come down and be born here on earth, and that changes everything. That that changes everything. Uh, Rodel Hernandez, and I want to give credit where credit's due. I'm using a lot of this pastor's uh, material for what I'm sharing here today. He says, what we celebrate at Christmas isn't a sweet isn't a sweet, defenseless baby Jesus, but God in the manger. We celebrate at Christmas an invasion, an entrance of a holy God right smack in the middle of enemy territory, that in him your eternity and my eternity may be very different than our short years here if we trust our lives to him. Christmas is the day we stop to commemorate when Jesus responded to God alone and coming down and crushing the serpents, the dragon's head, and the darkness here. Christmas is more like D-Day, when the Allies invaded Nazi Germany. It's more like D-Day than it is Silent Night. I love Revelation 6, verse 2, where it talks about Jesus. It says, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When Jesus, the baby Jesus, was born in the manger in Bethlehem, He rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Some translations say he came out conquering and to conquer. That's the Jesus we follow. That's the Jesus invading enemy territory that took place in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. He came out conquering and to conquer. Now, Revelation chapter 12 reveals the fact that Satan hated that Jesus came down from heaven to be born on earth. Satan just just hated that. It says in Revelation 12, verse 4, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And, And we know that Satan inspired Herod in Matthew 2, verse 16, to do just that when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the magi, by the wise men. He was furious, just like the Satan that he served. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the magi. A Satan hates God. But here's an encouragement. Satan hates God and he hates those of us that follow God, that that follow Christ. But here's a word of encouragement. If Satan couldn't touch Jesus as a baby, if God protected Jesus, his son, even as a baby, if Satan couldn't touch Jesus as a baby, isn't that enough for you and me to trust the Jesus who is now seated on his throne in heaven? If Satan couldn't touch him when he was a baby, certainly he can't touch us that follow Jesus When Jesus is now not a baby in Bethlehem in the manger, he is seated at the right hand of the Father 
in heaven. We can trust him. He's going to protect us and he can shield us from the devices of Satan. It says in Revelation 12, verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns <coughs> and seven crowns on, on its heads. And that leads us to the, the second principle here, the copycatness of Satan. Satan's kingdom is just a copycat kingdom. Um, and, and, and we see that in, 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 in verse 3 of Revelation 12. Uh, Satan is a counterfeit God wannabe. Uh, he's the opposite of God, but he pretends to be God. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He is a copycat. He wants to be God. He can't be God, so he is a copycat of God. Um, uh, it, it says in Revelation 12, verse 12, uh, tells us why he's so angry. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Now, uh, even a, a dragon, even a serpent that knows that his time is limited, his time is short, can still be dangerous if we, if we get involved with him, if we, if we open up our lives to him. I remember uh, being with my dad once, and, and, and my dad and I were so different. He, he loved Jesus, and I loved Jesus. And that's, a, that's one of the main similarities we have because he, he was uh, uh, such a great macho hunter, fisherman, lumberman, forester, you know. And, I, and, and, and one of the examples is I was, I've always been petrified of snakes, and he had absolutely no fear of snakes. When he was a forest ranger in Northern California, he and my mother, first right after they got married, their first home was living in a tent as a forest ranger in Northern California. And they had so many um, rattlesnakes in their tent that a Christian couple in town let my mom live there because she just, my mom was like me and she just couldn't take those rattlesnakes in the tent. Uh, but my, so my dad had no fear of snakes. He used to chase rattlesnakes, and if they were running from him and went into a hole, he'd grab them by the rattles, pull them out of the hole, and snap their necks and, and kill them. And I remember as a kid being with my dad, and uh, the one of the few poisonous snakes we have in Virginia is a copperhead. And one day he saw a copperhead. He had its axe in his hand, so he cuts the copperhead in half. And the half with the head continues to thrash around. And if you had gotten... Close to it, it could have bitten you and injected its venom into you. So my dad cuts him in half again, and now a fourth of the copperhead is just kind of flailing around. Finally, he cuts it right off of the head, and the head is still bouncing around, trying to get somebody with his venom. And that's the way Satan is. At the cross of Jesus, he was cut in two. At the resurrection, he was cut in fourths. His head was cut off. And yet he still has a fury because he knows that his time is short. And so we still need to be cautious. He can still be dangerous. But notice how he tries to copy Jesus. I just read that passage where it says in verse 3, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on, his head, on its heads. Um, uh, Jesus, he's, he's copycatting Jesus. It says in Revelation 1.16, that Jesus that describes him in his right hand, he held seven stars. And in Revelation 5, verse 6, the lamb had seven horns. And so here's how Jesus is described in Satan as a copycat, and he's trying to 
look like Jesus, trying to imitate Jesus because he's a copycat. And Satan is enraged against God and those who follow God. But the only thing he can do is to deceive you and me. That's, that's the, the main thing he can do. He has no power, but he, but he does have the ability to deceive you and me and others, and he wants to bring as many people as possible down with him in the end. He's going down, and he wants to bring others down as well. Now, he's a copycat, and we've got to remember, number three, that the copycat can't win. Uh, the dragon, this red dragon in Revelation, is the same as Leviathan that's talked about in Psalm 74, verse 14, which is a messianic psalm. It predicts the, the coming and the birth of Jesus, of Jesus, of the Christ, and of his victory. And it says in Psalm 74, verse 14, it was you, the Messiah, who crushed the heads of Leviathan, which means satanic dragon. And so here we have in Psalms a, a prophecy of what was to come a, a thousand years later. And notice here, this is fascinating detailed scripture. It says the heads of Leviathan, just like the heads, plural, of the red dragon, and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. Uh, Jesus said in John 8, 44, he said to the Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. So all he can do is to deceive us and deceive our family and friends, the people we love, and, and to discourage us. He just wants to deceive us and the people we love into following him to hell, in following him in his destruction. And if he can't deceive us, he wants to discourage us. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. So Satan wants to drag you and the people you love to hell with him, influencing you and them to not follow Christ uh, so that we do not receive the, the victory of Christ, but we are, partake of Satan's defeat. So we, we don't want to side with a defeated loser. And we must do everything in our power. Christmas is all about influencing our family and friends, what we call here at Purpose Church our, our oikos, our household, those in our fear, sphere of influence. We want to do everything we can to not let our family and friends side be deceived with a defeated loser. But like I said, if he can't deceive us, then he will try to discourage us. Matthew 24, verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold but the one who stands firm to the end is going to be saved. So Satan just wants to deceive you, but if he can't do that, he'll try to discourage you. God is going to win in the end. But I understand it doesn't look like it right now, does it? If he can't deceive us, he'll discourage us. And you look around in the world today and God says, uh, I'm going to win in the end. Uh, I remember Billy Graham once said, I'm an optimist because I've read the final page of the Bible and God wins in the end. Uh, the Revelation version of the Christmas story says that God's going to win in the end, but you look around and you get discouraged. You say, sure doesn't look like it right now. 
And yet we've got to hang on to these promises. We've got to hang on uh, to, to God's word, knowing that he wins in the end. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, I was here at church. Kimberly and I were at a meeting here at church, and uh, it was opposite the Green Bay Packers game. So we were taping it at home, and we told everybody at the event that we were at. It was one of the dessert fellowships for building for generations. We said, nobody tell us the score off of your phone because we're taping it, and we want to watch it when we get home. But I went to my office. I left my phone in the office because, you know, I just was so afraid I was going to see the score ahead of time. But you know how instinctively when you get your phone, you just pick it up to just see if there's any emergencies. You just, you can't, it's, it's like muscle memory. You just can't stop yourself from grabbing it and looking at it. And so I looked at it and my, one of my friends from here at church, Johnny Reynoso, uh, he's, a, he's also a Packers fan. And there was just a text that said, we did it. We did it. Three words. We did it. Now, I took that to mean that the Packers had won. And so I was sorry that I'd seen the result, but I was kind of happy at the same time knowing that they were going to win. Well, then I go and watch the game. And it was when they traveled to the Arizona Cardinals, who are the top team in the NFC right now. And, and man, I'm telling you, it did not look like the Packers were going to win. <laughs> it did not look like that. And, and the game got to the very end. And it's just like, there's no way the Packers are going to win this game. So what I found myself doing is I kept looking again and again at Johnny's message to me. We did it. And, and it was so contrary to what I was seeing happening as we watched the tape of the game that I'm like, oh, what did he mean by we did it? Did, did he mean we blew it? Did he mean we messed up? Did he mean we lost it? Maybe I misunderstood we did it. I thought it meant we're going to win, but maybe it means something different because it doesn't jive with what I'm seeing here. But then, lo and behold, the Packers won at the last minute, at the end of the game, and we did it was what I thought it was. We did it. We won the game. And I thought to myself later, that is so much like what's going on with the world. Jesus has promised us we, we do it. We win in the end. Jesus wins in the end. But you look around and you're like, well, maybe we misunderstood the message. Maybe we need to look more carefully because he said we win, but it sure doesn't look like we win. But if he said we win, we win in the end. And he wins in the end. Uh, number three, the copycat can't win. And number four, and we can't win either except in Christ. Copy can't, can't win, and we can't win either unless we abide in Christ. Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. We're like, okay, Jesus defeated him. Jesus defeated Satan. But how do we defeat Satan? How do we defeat him? Jesus did. But how do we do it? Well, he goes on to say in verse 11, they triumphed over him. We triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the shed blood of Christ that we trust in as our Lord and Savior. And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The way we win over Satan is we claim the blood of Jesus over our lives and we die to ourselves 
and we live for Christ. Colossians 2 verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Skipping down to verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he is taking it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Revelation 1 verse 5, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, by his blood. Revelation 5 verse 9, and with your blood, Jesus, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. John Flavel, uh, the great Puritan preacher from years ago said, Jesus, our head, is in heaven. And if the head is above the water, the body cannot drown. Our head, Jesus, is in heaven. And if the head is above the water, the body cannot drown. I don't know what you're going through today. But if you've received Christ as your Savior and Lord, you do it by saying three words. Oh God, oh God, I'm... I'm sorry for the sin in my life. Oh, Jesus, thank you for coming into the world to, so that I could be forgiven. You came into the world that first. You invaded enemy territory in Bethlehem in the manger. You lived a perfect life. You died on the cross. You rose from the grave. Thank you. Please come into my heart and be my Lord and my Savior. Say those three words to God. Sorry, thanks, or thank you, and please. And you will have the hope that Jesus, our head, is the head of your life. He's your savior. He's your leader. He's your king. He's your Lord. And let's go back to that John Flavel uh, quote right there. Uh, what, what, whatever you're going through today, if you make Christ the Lord of your life, if you make Jesus your savior and your Lord, Jesus, our head, your head, Whatever you're going through, let me encourage you, follower of Jesus. Whatever's going on in the world, whatever's going on in your life, Jesus, your head is in heaven. And if the head is above the water, the body cannot drown. And all God's family said, amen and amen.